Mark 1, 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Friends, as we've begun going into the the book of Mark, I feel like a kid who's been in the shallow end of the pool for a while and just learning to swim, now going out into the deep end. I think especially what we see in the Gospels is so, so profound, so momentous. We see God incarnate, Jesus, the Son of God coming in the fullness of time, fulfilling everything that needs to be fulfilled. We see the glory of the triune God and the sending of the Son, which to us is so deep, so mysterious that we can't even understand it. And so I I feel out of my depth this morning as we even look at a few verses here in the Gospel of John, but or, or the Gospel of Mark here, but nevertheless, we'll try to plumb some of the depths in these verses. Last week, we saw in the first eight verses of Mark, the preparatory ministry of, of John the Baptist. We saw the beginning of the gospel with this one crying out in the wilderness, this messenger God sent to prepare the way before Jesus Christ. We saw him proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and and preaching Jesus Christ as a humble servant, preaching this one who would come after him who is mightier than him, who is not worthy to stoop down and untie the sandals of this one, this one who brought a greater baptism than John's. And so, as we go on, we see now Jesus himself coming. The Lord, who was promised to come, is coming on the scene after the ministry of John the Baptist. And his ministry here starts with his own baptism. Now, as we go into this passage, (coughs) obviously the other Gospels talk about this event as well. I'm not going to try to get into all the details of those other accounts, uh, but I will bring in some of those other verses when necessary. But first of all, here we do see the baptism of Jesus in verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He came from Nazareth. This was the place of Jesus' upbringing. We don't have much detail about Jesus' upbringing. In fact, really the only thing we have is from Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where it says that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. As he was there in Nazareth, he was submitting to his parents. We know also that Jesus was a builder like his father. Some say a carpenter. That word really refers to a builder who would build things with could be wood, could be stone, could be even metal. So Jesus followed in that trade. And Luke 3.23 tells us that Jesus was now about 30 years of age when he began his ministry. Like I said, this baptism is what really kicks off this 
this ministry of Jesus. Now, as we consider the baptism of Jesus, the question comes to our mind right away, why was Jesus baptized? If we understand especially what John the Baptist's baptism was, why would Jesus go through this? We know that John was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was calling sinners to repent, to come to a knowledge of their sin, to turn to the Lord again, to confess their sins, and to be baptized as a sign of the cleansing that would even come through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus was not a sinner, right? Jesus was not a sinner. And so why would he submit to this baptism? John's baptism was for sinners who needed cleansing from spiritual leprosy. Jesus, as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, and as we'll see as we go on, even looking at the temptation of Jesus, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7 Verse 26 tells us that Jesus was unstained and sinless, separated from sinners. He's holy and innocent. And so Jesus was not a sinner. So why would he come to John to be baptized in the Jordan? Well, bringing in what we do know here from other accounts, we can cobble together some reasons that Jesus was baptized by John. First of all, it was to fulfill all righteousness. He was fulfilling all righteousness. If you look with me at Matthew chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, Jesus came to be baptized and John had the same question that we're asking right now. Verse 14 says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So Jesus says here, his baptism is part of fulfilling all righteousness. Now what does that mean? We know that Jesus came to live a righteous life, a righteous life in the flesh as a man. This is is God the Son taking upon Himself a human nature and to live righteously in our place and then die sacrificially in our place. We know that John's baptism was truly from God. It was from heaven, and so it was a right thing It was a good thing for a Jew to be baptized by him. What we see here is that Jesus does everything that a faithful Jew would have done. He came in the fullness of time under the law. He obeyed all the laws that were written in the Old Testament. Every institution ordained by God. All the will of the Heavenly Father. This is what we call the active obedience of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2.8, it says that Jesus, having taken on the form of a, a servant, having come in 
the likeness of men, became obedient to the point of death. He was completely obedient in his earthly life. And this is so important. If Jesus was not obedient, if Jesus was not truly the righteous one, the holy one of God, he cannot die for us as a perfect sacrifice for sin, nor could his righteousness be credited to us as it is in our salvation. When we trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed or accounted to us. There was a theologian in, in the early 1900s named J. Gresham Machen. He was a, a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, started that seminary in response to liberalism. And just as he was about to die, he sent a telegram to his good friend John Murray, who was also a professor. And he said this, this is on his deathbed, he said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And so it was necessary for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, even in this point of being baptized by John. Second, second reason here is to identify with our sin. Identifying with our sin. Jesus, in being baptized, came among all of the people who were being baptized in repentance. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, notes how when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. All the people of Israel, almost, came out to submit to this baptism because they needed to repent of their sins and be cleansed. Jesus, in doing this, he comes among sinners. He identifies with us as if he was a sinner. Again, Jesus never sinned, but taking upon this baptism was a way in which he identified with us. He came in the water with us. And so he identifies as our substitute even for our sins. Thirdly, this points to his final baptism. <clears throat> in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus will talk about the baptism with which he is to be baptized. Well, this was the first baptism Jesus went through, but there was another baptism to come. And I think we can see here, this is a foreshadowing even of that baptism. What was that? Well, it was when Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again from the dead. This is where we get the, uh, the significance of immersion baptism. Even as Christians, we go under the water like Jesus died and was buried and, and was raised up. This points to his final baptism where Jesus truly was obedient to the point of death and became the substitute for sinners, bearing our sins upon the cross in order to redeem us. Fourthly, we should see here, Jesus was baptized in order to reveal who he was to Israel. John chapter 1 makes this point clear. John 1 
verse 29 to 34, <coughs> tells us, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was baptized, sorry, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So you see in verse 31 there, for this purpose he came baptizing, that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. This baptism event was used by God in order to reveal the Son of God, the Messiah, to Israel, just like our baptisms, when we are baptized as Christians, it's a public testimony. This baptism of Jesus was a public revelation, public testimony to, to who he was. And as we go on into this next section, we see that not just Jesus, but the whole Trinity is revealed here. But Jesus especially is revealed as the anointed one, as the Messiah. And so, second section here, going on into verses 10 and 11, we see the revelation of the anointed one. Here we see really a unique revelation of the triune God. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father are revealed to us here so clearly at the same time. It's a, a beautiful picture we get of our triune God. We know that we have one God. God is one. He is one in substance, essence, being, nature. But in a mysterious way, He is also three persons. And not, not just manifested at different times in three persons. We see here at the same time, all three persons in unison revealed to us. <coughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Some coughs here this morning. So, the Trinity is revealed here with the purpose of revealing Christ, the Anointed One. And here, really, what we have to understand is this is the public anointing of Jesus for His ministry. There's a few elements of this revelation we'll look at in turn. We see, first of all, that at this event, God was showing that He was coming down to save His people. Notice here, verse 10, And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. To understand this passage, I think we have to go back to Isaiah Chapter 64, verse 1, which is why I ha had that read this morning. In Isaiah 64 and the surrounding context, 
Israel is in exile. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The people are calling out for redemption and restoration from God, their father. And so we see there's this plea for God to come down and rescue them, to redeem them, to be their savior. They note in chapter 64 that it's because of their sins that they're in this situation. Verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. See in verse 11 and 12, the, really the devastation, and they're calling out to God, our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. <coughs> And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? They're asking for God to rouse himself. They say in chapter 64, verse 1, then, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So they were reflecting on the past mighty works of God, even his salvation at the time of the Exodus. In chapter 63, as uh, they remember Moses and his people, verse 11, how God brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths they're asking, where is this God? Where is this God who saved us in the past? Oh, that he would come down again in power, that he would reveal himself again. And we see in the history of Israel that a partial answer came as God again redeemed his people from a foreign land, brought them across the river Euphrates back to their own land. Just like in old, uh, uh, the Exodus, it's a new Exodus. But what we see here is God's true answer comes with the anointing of Jesus Christ for his redeeming work. This really is the start of a new Exodus. It says here that the heavens were being torn open. That's the same kind of language used in Isaiah 64. You would rend the heavens. God here opened up the heavens. He tore them away that he might show that he was coming down for the redemption of his people. So the heavens were torn open. He's coming down to save. We see here, secondly, the Spirit's descent. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. As God tears the heavens open, he sends the third person of the Trinity, the, the Spirit of God, down upon Jesus in order to anoint the servant of the Lord. Also to understand this, we should go back to the book of Isaiah. In that same broader section of Isaiah, starting in chapter 40 to 66, we have a lot about God's redemption through this coming servant of the Lord, who would come as a covenant for the people, be a light to the nations, 
to redeem Israel, to be obedient, and even to suffer and die for their sins. In chapter 42, verse 1, God tells us about this servant. (coughs) He says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. You see here that the father is speaking of the coming servant of the Lord. And he would put his spirit upon him for his task of redemption. We see this also in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. This anointed servant of the Lord. It says here, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And Jesus also read this passage as he spoke to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he said that that passage was fulfilled in their hearing. The Spirit's descent is significant here because it means that Jesus is the one anointed by the Spirit. He's anointed for this task, his ministry. Even like prophets and kings of old were anointed in the Old Testament, especially King David, we see that he was anointed in 1 Samuel 16, 13, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him for his rule. This is something like a a king or a a president's inauguration ceremony today, that, that he's set apart for that task. Jesus here is being set apart as the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of kings and Lord of lords at the beginning of his ministry. This was a redemption planned by the Trinity from before all ages. And that covenant of redemption, as as Jesus agreed to the work that the Father planned for him and the Spirit comes upon him for that task. We see here that the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Luke will even say he appeared in bodily form like a dove. So the, the Spirit manifests himself here like a dove. Now, why is that and what significance might that have? <coughs> With all these things, we have to be remembering the Old Testament and, and looking back even to past revelation and how things in the past were imaged for us to even look forward to the work of Christ. We know that the Spirit of God was the agent of creation. In Genesis 1-2, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, that the Spirit of God was involved in the initial work of creation. 
where the earth was formless and void, the Spirit, by, by the command of the Father, the whole Trinity was working there in creation. And that word there, hovering, is significant as it's a word sometimes used of even a, a, a bird or a, a chicken that would be um, brooding over its egg, bringing new life. And so that's the idea there that the Spirit of God was bringing the new life of creation. Then you see further in Genesis, Genesis chapter 8, verses 8 to 12, that after God destroyed the earth in a flood, he was making, as it were, a, a new earth, a new opportunity for Noah and his family to go out upon, upon the earth and, and a, a fresh start. Noah sent out a dove to look for a place to rest. That dove initially found a, a twig and brought it back. Then, then it didn't come back anymore because it found a place to rest. And so Noah knew that they could come out of the ark onto this, this new earth, as it were. I believe here the, the imagery of the dove, the, that the fact that the Spirit chose to manifest Himself in this way, shows us that in Jesus Christ, a new creation is dawning. We know that with the work of Christ, we become new creations. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. Jesus became the firstborn from the dead, resurrected to a glorious life that we also will take part in. And then he's going to set up a new heavens and a new earth where we'll dwell eternally with God. This is the start of that new creation work as the Spirit descended as a dove upon Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we see here the Father's voice. So we see Jesus baptized, the, the Son of God. We see the Spirit descending upon Him. And then we have this voice from heaven, which we know is the voice of the Father. The Father. The Father's voice glorifies His Son as He puts His Spirit upon Him. <clears throat> In John 12, verse 28 to 30, we also have another instance like this where God spoke from heaven and glorified the Son. Chapter 12, verse 28 to 30. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. As we even think about the Old Testament, there was a time where God spoke directly to his people from, from the mountain, Mount Sinai, spoke the Ten Commandments. Here the Father speaks, but he speaks a word about his Son. This also happens again at the Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. And verse 7, as Jesus' glory is opened up to the disciples for a moment, they see him shining like, like the sun in its brightness. It says that there in verse 7, a, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son 
listen to him. Peter will reflect on this event also in the book of 2 Peter and chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, <coughs> with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So they heard this, and it was really the Father glorifying the Son. We know that God gives his glory to no other. And so Jesus truly is the, the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, being revealed here, glorified by the Father's voice. And we see in the Father's voice here, really Jesus' identity being revealed. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. My son, he says, my, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And this language again is also found in the Old Testament <coughs> in Psalm Chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus calls, uh, sorry, God calls uh, the anointed one, this Davidic king who rules over all people and brings judgment and salvation. He calls him the son. Today I have begotten you. You, you are my son. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, that we looked at before, he says that uh, this servant is the one in whom he delights, with whom he's well pleased. Even in Genesis 22, verse 2, we have this language of Abraham and his son Isaac, that he was his only son, the one he loves. What we have here is Jesus revealed as the true divine son of God, the true king of Israel, the true servant of the Lord. He's, he's the Son of God, God's beloved Son, which speaks to His divinity and His kingship. This, this also, as we spoke last week, was against the Roman emperors who called themselves Div, Divis Filius, the, the sons of God. This, as we'll learn later, was counted as blasphemy to the Jews in Mark 14, 61 to 62. They asked Jesus, are you the Son of the Blessed? And he says, yes, I am. And so they see this as blasphemy. This was equivalent to Jesus making himself God, which we know he was. But they rejected this truth. See that he's the beloved son of God. That is that the father loves him and has loved him for all eternity. John 17, 4, as Jesus prays to the father, he notes how the father has loved him before the foundation of the world. And then we see that he's the one with whom the Father is well pleased. As this one who fulfills all righteousness. He is perfect in the sight of the Father. And no one has pleased God like Christ. He had a perfect righteousness in his earthly life. And so he perfectly pleased the Father. 
God was well pleased with him. So friends here, we see Jesus' baptism and this revelation of him at the beginning of his ministry. And, and what does this mean really for us? Well, first of all, we need to recognize who Jesus is. We need to recognize Jesus for who he is. The question comes to all of us, will we take this revelation seriously? Will we truly come under this truth and recognize Jesus as the holy Son of God, as the beloved of the Father, as the true servant of the Lord, who has come to redeem his people? Will we come under him as the anointed king, the, the true Messiah? If we come to him and recognize this truth, we must submit completely to this king. We must understand who Jesus is if we want to come under him and follow him. He must occupy the highest place in our minds and hearts. We need to recognize Jesus here for who he is, the, the redeemer who is sent by God the Father into this world, empowered by the Spirit for this ministry he was about to accomplish. Second, we must also trust in Jesus' work on our behalf. This is the one who has fulfilled all righteousness, who went through the, the waters in a new exodus, who identified with us in our sin, who bore our sins all the way to Calvary, who was baptized in his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. This is the one who has come down, who has rent the heavens and come down for our salvation. We are, even our good works, as Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. We are sinners who need to come to God in repentance, as we saw last week, to confess our sins before him. But we have one who has come in our place for our redemption, who was anointed by the Spirit for this work, and he fulfilled it to the end. Friends, this Jesus Christ, this servant of the Lord, is the one we must trust in. You must repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. There's no other way, no hope without the active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ and the, the doing and dying of Christ. You must come to him and trust in him and then even be baptized as a sign of that salvation that you've received. Thirdly, friends, we must rest in our acceptance in him. As Jesus was called the beloved son here, we are also, we who believe in Jesus Christ, who have our sins forgiven, are now called beloved sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. If you are united to him, by baptism into death. If you've been raised up with Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness. You are justified in his sight. You also are well-pleasing to him because you're clothed in his righteousness. Your sins are forgiven through his substitutionary death on the cross so that God can look at you even though you are still a sinner and he can be well-pleased with you. 
J.C. Ryle notes this in his expository thoughts on the book of Mark. He says, there's a rich mine of comfort in these words for all Christ-believing members. In themselves and in their own doings, they see nothing to please God. They are daily sensible of weakness, shortcoming, and imperfection in all their ways. But let them recollect that the Father regards them as members of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He sees no spot in them. He beholds them as in Christ, clothed in His righteousness, and invested with His merit. They are accepted in the Beloved. And when the holy eye of God looks at them, He is well pleased. So may God grant us grace to recognize Jesus for who He is, to trust in Him, and rest in Him. Let's pray.